This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our study today. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You begin with creation, and then we have the reality of human disobedience, the fall, and then the demonstration of your grace from Genesis 3 throughout the rest of Scripture, your promise from the very beginning of sin that you would provide a Savior who would deliver us from the penalty of sin, who would provide a perfect solution for that penalty so that by simply trusting in him, we would have eternal life. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that thread of promises and prophecies depicting the coming one who would be our Savior from sin. And now as we study in Matthew, we see the fulfillment of those promises in the birth, the life, and the death of Jesus of Nazareth. Father, we pray as we study that we might be challenged by what we see in your word, that this is not just historical uh, narrative, this is not just a recitation of facts, but that there is a challenge here to us to recognize your uh, sovereignty, your authority over our lives, and that as we are come to your word, we realize that this, this means that since Jesus has changed our lives through our salvation, that this needs to be worked out in terms of our day-to-day living. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The last three weeks we've been looking at the birth of Jesus. It's Christmas in the fall. And today it finally feels like it, doesn't it? Just a little hint that somehow things will be different the next couple of months. And once again, we've managed to survive uh, another hot, humid Gulf Coast summer, and this year we can rejoice that it looks like we've dodged another hurricane bullet and we didn't get one this year, so we ought to be thankful for that. But we have been studying about the birth of Jesus. We studied about his, the genealogy indicating his royal lineage and his right to the throne of his ancestor, David, king of Israel. That emphasis on David runs throughout these birth narratives, even in Luke, that Matthew focuses on Jesus as the king, uh, as the king of the Jews. How come I'm not on? Maybe we need to turn those on. As Jesus, as the king of the Jews, and here we see his arrival and reception in chapter 2 of Matthew. Last time we looked at his arrival in terms of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem in the Luke story, and what I'm doing here. In this portion of our study, while the primary study is running through Matthew, we're also going to Luke and to the other Gospels for additional insight and information into the life of Jesus. The three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are often referred to as the synoptic Gospels from a root that that, that reminds us of the English word synonym because they are close parallels but if you look at them each, even though they may relate the same episode or the same story, Eddie, something isn't functioning correctly because I'm not getting anything up on the screen. It's not computer two. Let's try computer one. Not computer one. Okay. I don't know why I'm not getting a signal across. I'm Oh, I do. It came, it came unplugged here. 
It's always a plug. No, it was this plug. It was that plug. It should come through right now. Okay. Put it on, back on two. Okay. All right. That was just a commercial break for the for technology. All right. In Luke chapter 2, we see the story of, his, of Jesus' arrival, the birth, his placement in the manger, which was not in a barn. It wasn't in a cave. It wasn't in a, a, a caravansary campground. It was in a house. That is not something that has been traditionally taught because only within the last 20 or 30 years, as we've investigated more and more uh, from archaeology, the structure of homes from the uh, first century, and also even today in the homes of, of many in the um, in the Arab world and in the Middle East, there is a place within the home where the prized possessions, the prized animals will be brought in during inclement weather, during a cold night, where they will have uh, a place to bed down, and there is a feed trough there, which is what a manger is. And so it's not necessary for Jesus to have been born in a barn or in a cave, uh, that it is very likely, as we saw last time, based on the words used in the Luke narrative, that when Joseph and Mary, uh, who are probably known in Bethlehem, Joseph, if Joseph is the clear descendant of the line of David, then he, and he probably still owned land or had some property, perhaps family property in Bethlehem, which is why he had to return there for the census. He would be known there, and Middle Eastern hospitality is well known as being extremely effusive and generous, and so it's just not likely that Mary and Joseph would have shown up late one night, and people would have would have said, well, we just don't have any room for you, go, go stay in a cave somewhere. It just doesn't fit what we know of the culture, what we know of how houses were constructed or other things. The word there uh, that's translated, no room at the inn, is a word uh, in the Greek, kataluma, which doesn't mean an inn like a motel. It means a guest room. And it's the same word that's used to describe the upper chamber, the upper room where Jesus and the disciples celebrated the Last Supper. It was often a room that was used for guests. And when Joseph and Mary arrived, uh, there were probably other family members or it was in use. And so there wasn't room for them in the guest room. So they had to stay in the garage, so to speak. They had to stay stay down where uh, the animals were. And this probably, and, and at the time that Jesus was born, which wasn't, as I pointed out last time, was not necessarily that night, but it was probably advantageous for that to occur in that area because then there would not uh, be ritual uncleanness from the birth that would accrue to the house. So that way the house and the people in the house would not be affected uh, by the birth of a male child, which according to the Mosaic law would render the mother ritually unclean uh, for the period of uh, approximately a week. And so... We have his arrival at a house. Now, that's important because in Matthew 2, we see that when the Magi arrive, that they come to a house. And for years, people have suggested that this shows a difference between the original birth location and where uh, Jesus' family moved later on. And again, this would indicate uh, some sort of time gap between the birth the night of the birth, the arrival of the shepherds, and the eventual arrival of the magi. There are several arguments that have been advanced to that, and we'll look at those in a minute as we get into the first verse. But I just want to put this chart up on the screen again as a visual uh, for this the, the infancy narratives with the announcement to Joseph in Matthew, the announcement to Mary in Luke 1, that Mary as a virgin would conceive by the Holy Spirit, and give birth to a child in fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah 7.14 and Isaiah 9.6, that a virgin would conceive and give birth, and the child would be called Emmanuel. And in both angelic announcements, there's a, a command to name the child Jesus, Yeshua in the Hebrew from the verb yasha, meaning to save or deliver. It's the same 
uh, root. It's the same name, actually, as Joshua. And so it's a reminder and it's an emphasis on the role of Jesus as the Savior. And so in this little graphic, we have the angel in the, in the upper left making the announcement, the figure on the donkey indicating the travel, the birth of the child, uh, and then the uh, sword in the lower area uh, <coughs> indicating the, the uh, murder of the innocents, as it's called, the slaughter of the innocents by uh, by Herod. And so this gives us the a little visual panorama of these events. Now we come to Matthew chapter 2. The emphasis continues to be upon the royalty of Jesus, as opposed to Luke, where the emphasis there, by virtue of the shepherds coming, is more on his humanity. Uh, the genealogy in Luke traces Jesus' uh, heritage all the way back to Adam, whereas the genealogy in Matthew just traced it back through David to Abraham. So there's a different emphasis. In Luke, Jesus is presented as the, as the son of man, uh, his, which emphasizes his universal role as savior, whereas in Matthew, the emphasis is on Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David, his royalty, there's more quotes from the Old Testament, more allusions to the Old Testament by far in Matthew than any of the other Gospels. So we have to keep this in mind as we look at the episode of the visit of the Magi. And as we look at this, we see just in terms of a survey of this chapter that there, they, these Magi, we have to figure out who they are, these Magi arrive in Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews. And they go to Herod, assuming as the leader and as the king of the Jews, as he had finally been given that title by, by uh, uh, Augustus, that as the king of the Jews, he might know where this child would be born. And so they show up on his doorstep, and this just scares paranoid Herod to death, and we have to learn a little bit about Herod, and it really fleshes out the story a, a good bit. And Herod has no idea that the king of the Jews, other than him, has been born. In fact, he's been busy killing two or three of his own sons because in his paranoid rages, he thought they were conspiring against him to steal his throne. And so now he's, his paranoia really is going to kick into high gear, but he tries to keep it covered. And he invites the, all the major religious leaders, the scribes, and the chief priests to come and answer the question where this child, this Messiah, would be born. And so they come and, and they inform him. But what's interesting is we see that, that the scribes and the Pharisees come and they're asked, where's the child supposed to be born? And they say, what? and they, they're, they're all in agreement. They, they don't hesitate. They don't say, well, it could have been here, it could have been there, it could have been somewhere else. They all say it's one place which is clear indication that in the first century, Jews understood Matthew 5, I mean Micah 5.2 as a prophecy of the, birth, the location of the birth of the Messiah. And it's very clear that they all agree upon that, but it doesn't get them very excited. They are not curious. They don't want to go along with the Magi to see anything, learn anything about this child. So we see an indifference on the part of the religious leaders to the arrival of the king, and that fits and goes along with the hostility of the rejection of Herod of the arrival of the king. And this just gives us a, uh, an overview of what happens. And then as they focus on the location Herod enters into a little conspiratorial secret conference with the Magi and in a very self-righteous, deceptive way says, well, you guys go ahead and find him and then come back. Come back and tell me because I want to worship him too. Uh, little, uh, little knowing that his real plan is to uh, assassinate this newborn child so there won't be any rivals to the, to the throne. And so the Magi then go and they find the location of the child and they worship him, bringing him gifts fit for royalty. And then they're warned by an angel of Herod's plot. And so they go home uh, by a different route. 
that gives us the the overview. And the focus here that we see are, are several. There's a uh, an apparent indifference and um, a lack of concern on the part of the religious leaders, which foreshadows their eventual rejection and hostility toward toward Jesus. We see the uh, uh, hostility and antagonism of Herod, which foreshadows the future antagonism and rejection of the political leaders and the religious leaders in, in Israel. But both of those also... Uh, foreshadow uh, the the ultimate hostility and rejection of much of the world down through the church age of the claims of Jesus uh, of Nazareth. But on the other side, we see the the welcome reception by the Magi, who are Gentile uh, leaders. They, they represent a priest class that came out of Persia, and they represent the positive response toward Toward Jesus. So as we come to the first verse, we're told now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, just a couple of things are important about structure. Uh, this is all one sentence, at least down to the question mark, saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And then the second half of verse 2, we have an explanation that tells us why they were looking for the king of the Jews, that they had seen a star in the east, and their purpose is to come and worship him. As we look at this, it's not clear in the English but if you have a knowledge of Greek, it begins with a somewhat unusual con, uh, grammatical construction, which emphasizes a, a temporal marker. In fact, we have a similar construction at the beginning of verse 13, which tells us that, that basically this section should be broken into two, uh, two dramatic episodes, the first emphasizing the arrival and the adoration of the Magi, and the second dealing with the rejection of the Messiah from verse 13 down through the end of the chapter. Uh, what happens at the beginning is that we're told after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, I pointed out in my introduction that one of the issues that has come up over the years is just what's the time relationship between the arrival of the Magi and the birth of Jesus and the arrival of the shepherds. And often when we look at nativity scenes, everybody's there at the same time. We have the traditional view that the shepherds show up, and after they leave, then the magi show up, and there's always three magi, uh, Casper, Melchior, and Balthazar, and those names are purely fictitious. No, uh, they, they showed up sometime around the 2nd or 3rd century A.D., but nobody has any idea where those names came from. They're not biblical. In fact, the number of magi is not known at all. It's not three. They came up with the idea of three because there were three gifts, but the early church and the Eastern Orthodox Church says that there were 12. Now, there's no basis for 12 either, but that makes that, that works well with the 12 tribes of Israel, and 12 is a biblical number that's used a lot, so that, that seems to be the background for that. We don't know how, how, how many there were. We don't know when they arrived. Now, the, traditionally, there have been several arguments made for the fact that there's a large time difference between the arrival of the of the child, the birth of the child, and the arrival of the shepherds, and the arrival of the magi. One of those arguments is based on the, the word child. It says in, in uh, uh, the word child is paideia, but the word child, uh, paideia, can refer to any child from the moment of birth up until the time that they reach some sort of maturity, usually in early early pubescence, early adolescence. And so that's not a good good term. The, the, that doesn't indicate anything. It doesn't. Some have said that, well, 
when the, uh, the Greek word brephos for infant is used at the very beginning and then child indicates he's grown a little bit, doesn't do that at all. The word, word paideia is used of Jesus as a child when on the, um, after a week on the seventh day he's taken into the temple for his circumcision or bris. So that doesn't tell us anything. The second argument has been that the difference between being born in a manger and being in a house, that that indicates again that a lot of time has transpired and that really doesn't work either. And so uh, the only, th- and then the third argument is that Herod wants to uh, assassinate every child from the age of two down. And that's probably the strongest argument because as we read this particular story, when uh, Herod goes into his conspiratorial conference with the Magi in verse 7, he wants to know when the star appeared. And on the basis of that, uh, we can, he, he determines to kill every infant from two below. It just could be, pardon the pun, overkill. He wants to make sure that there's no mistakes, and so he's going to uh, exaggerate the age a little bit just to make sure that he gets the child, and that's very possible. It's also likely that the star did not appear in the east to the Magi at the time of the birth, but it preceded the time of the birth as an announcement that this is about to happen, giving them time to organize their caravan and to travel from Parthia to Jerusalem and to Bethlehem for the time of the birth. And so that really, the the timing of the appearance of the star really doesn't give us much of an indication. The strongest indication is just this grammatical construction here at the beginning of the chapter after the birth of Jesus, but we don't know. It could have been a week, a month, it could have been six months or a year. I doubt if it was much longer than that. The longer we put the time frame here, the more of a problem we have with with Herod's life. Herod dies, we know, in 4 B.C., about April, early spring of 4 B.C. And so this um, this means that if, if Jesus is a year and a half, then it's he's born close to five or six or and he wouldn't be any earlier than that or, or so that probably around five. Luke says later that Jesus began his public ministry when he was about 30 years of age. A lot of people haven't recognized the importance of the word about there, and there have been those who have taught that Jesus began right when he was 30, uh, as a fulfillment of the Mosaic law that priests began their ministry at 30. But Jesus doesn't have to, and priests did not have to begin their ministry on the day of their uh, birthday. Uh, they just could not serve at a time when they were younger than 30. So Jesus is somewhere, uh, uh, somewhat more than 30 years of age when he began his ministry, but not so much closer to 35 or 40 that about 30 wouldn't work. So we're, we're given a general parameter there uh, that doesn't give us a lot of specificity. So probably Jesus is born around uh, certainly no later than 4, early 4 B.C., probably around 5 or maybe uh, late 6 B.C. The reason this is not zero, there's no real zero in the way we do the calendar. We go from 1 B.C., the way we count things, we go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., but the calendar that we use, the uh, Gregorian calendar that was instituted in 525 A.D. by Dionysius Exiguus, uh, mis- he miscalculated. So everything's off a little bit, and that's why uh, it makes a bit of a, dif- uh, a bit of a difference. So all we can say is Jesus is born sometime after. I mean, the, the Magi arrived sometime afterwards. It's my guess is it's probably not a long period of time, a few weeks, a few months, probably not more than that. Now, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, as we know from our story in Luke and what we read there, and it said in the days of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the is called the Great primarily because of his uh, mammoth architectural accomplishments. He was a master builder. It is phenomenal to travel through Israel today and to go to the various archaeological sites 
of the things that he constructed, the most magnificent of which is, of course, the Temple Mount. The, many of us are familiar with the images of the Western Wall. Well, that whole wall is a retaining wall that was built, and the foundation stones of that retaining wall are, are quite large. It always impresses people on tours when we go down and walk the tunnels alongside the western wall, and you can see these mammoth uh, foundation stones that extend, for example, from this post over to that wall. Uh, they'll be approximately that long and maybe five feet high, four to five feet in height, and they weigh somewhere around uh, 450 tons. And these stones were moved there by that really primitive system of of uh, construction that they had. I'm saying that sarcastically because we always think that if somebody lived a generation before us, they really didn't have access to good technology. But they had a they had a more rudimentary technology, of course. But they were able to move these enormous stones and to put them in place, and that's what gives stability to that whole uh, Temple Mount area. And so that's that's one of um, Herod's most known projects. He also uh, built a, a fortress down near Bethlehem called the Herodian, which is where he was buried, and just about five years ago they discovered the burial site there. He rebuilt Matzadah, or Masada, as a fortress, as a place of refuge. He built a he built the largest and best port in the eastern Mediterranean at Caesarea Maritima. Uh, he built uh, he rebuilt ancient Samaria as Sebastia, which was uh, a uh, pretty much a Roman city in uh, in the area of Sam- uh, the region of Samaria north of Jerusalem, and many many other projects. And that's what he was known for. But he was he was also known for his severe paranoia. And because in the last few years of his life, he was uh, extremely deranged mentally. He believed that many of his uh, uh, relatives were conspiring against him and seeking to kill him. But one of the groups with whom he had his greatest fears because of what had happened early in his reign were the Parthians. Now, the Parthians were the heirs of the ancient Persian Empire off to the east of Judea and, and the Galilee. And um, the Parthians were the heirs of the ancient Persians, and the Persians had been allied uh, during the time of Daniel with a smaller ethnic group called the Medes. And so when we read through the book of Daniel, we learn about the Medes and the Persians. And among the Medes, there were various tribes, and one of these tribes were called the Magoi, the Magi. And they were a priestly tribe that by the time of the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire, they had risen to a position of significance and prominence in the political structure, especially of the, of the uh, uh, Parthian Empire. Uh, we see an indication of their uh, their presence in Jeremiah 29 verse 3, uh, 39 verse 3 and Jeremiah 39 verse 13. This is at the time of the Babylonian Empire and it, they, they are coming to, um, uh, they're in, in Jerusalem and going to besiege Jerusalem and in Jeremiah there's a list of the leaders who came to, uh, uh, present their uh, their mandates to the leaders in Jerusalem. And among these, one of the titles of the leaders is the Rabmag. Now in verse 13, you see that there's another title, Rabsaris, also up here in 39.3. And it's that first word, Rab, which indicates the chief or the leader. Uh, and the second uh, the second syllable, mag, is the abbreviated form of magi. This is the chief, later it's translated into Hebrew in Daniel as the chief of the magicians, but it's really the chief of the magi. The magi tribe is part of their uh, uh, priestly religion uh, focused upon astrology. They focused, focused on astronomy and mathematics, and they studied the stars and predicting predicting the future. Uh, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 9, Daniel's name, the Aramaic name given to him by the, um, 
by uh, the Babylonians was Belteshazzar. And after he successfully interpreted the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar, he was elevated to a position over all of the, what's translated as magicians, it's the word, the Hebrew word chartom, um, and instead of the Persian word magi. But that's the same word. So he's the Rabmog. He becomes the chief of the Magi. Now that's important because when we get to the time of Jesus, we go, how did these guys find out about Jesus? How did they find out about the Jewish Messiah? And why do they want to come and worship the Jesus, the, the, the Jewish Messiah? And the answer is, is there was a tradition within, uh, their, their tribal history of Daniel, who at one time had been the chief of the Magi. And from what we know about Daniel, Daniel would not have been shy about teaching them about uh, Hebrew prophecies and teaching them about the prophecies of the Messiah and communicating the gospel as he knew it from within an Old Testament framework. And so there would have been a tradition of Old Testament believers, Gentile believers within the tribe of the Magi uh, in, in the Old Testament period. Now, as we bring this forward into the time of Herod, we need to understand a couple of things that had happened in Herod's past. Herod was the uh, grandson, I believe, of Antipater, an Edomite or an, an Edomian. He's an Edomite. He's a descendant of Esau. Edom was another name for Esau, the brother of Jacob. And he had, his father had married uh, uh, and a Jew, Jewish woman, so because of that, he is a half a half blood. He's part Jewish and he's part Edomian, but he wasn't well. Uh, Herod wasn't well loved by by the Jews. In 63 BC, so some 60 years before Jesus is born, uh, the Roman general Pompey conquered Jerusalem, and then he went on east and attacked the Parthians. And and by uh, 55 BC, when Crassus came along and followed him, and then attacked the Parthians, the Parthians just cleaned the Roman clock. And the Par- the Romans were never able to push east and to defeat uh, to defeat the Parthians. And so by 40 BC, the Parthians gained control of Jerusalem, and they established a Jewish leader named Antigonus as a puppet ruler in Jerusalem. Now Herod had been appointed ruler. Antipater died, and so Herod became the ruler. Now Herod has to flee for his life, and the Parthians have a price on his head. And, and at first, uh, Herod went to Masada, where he put his family, and then he left and he went to Egypt and entered into an alliance with Cleopatra. And then he left from there and he went to Rome to get Caesar's help. And then he came back with an army and he landed up at the port of Akko near Haifa, and he headed south into uh, the Galilee and then down to Jerusalem in order to run the Parthians out of uh, out of Israel and regain his throne. As a result of his victory, uh, Augustus gave him the title of the king of the Jews, but he's not a Davidic king. He has no right to that title. He wasn't uh, a descendant of King David at all. And so uh, he becomes the king and the ruler, and he had a, a remarkable rule for a number of reasons. He was also rather harsh and paranoid, as I said. But he always had this paranoid fear about the Parthians because there were a lot of conspiracies that were taking place. There were a lot of Jews that hated Herod. And so they would constantly uh, get involved in these conspiracies with the Parthians. And there were two or three times when the Parthians attacked the Romans and tried to regain control of Judea and Galilee. And so Herod is just scared to death uh, of the Parthians. Well, now as we go back into the Magi and kind of bring them up into the first century uh, B.C., what happens through the Parthian Empire is that as, as things developed, the Magi became more and more powerful until they became sort of a council which elected or approved the, the election of each new king of Parthia. So they became known as kingmakers. You didn't gain any power politically in Parthia without the approval of the Magi. And so now we have a scenario in the first century, uh, B.C. and 4 B.C., when the Magi show up in Jerusalem and they knock on Herod's door. 
these Parthian kingmakers, and some have suggested that there may have been as many as 50 to 100 in the party because they would have been traveling through hostile territory and they're going into Jerusalem which and into the Roman Empire, which is a, 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 an enemy. And so they would not have been just three men uh, traveling alone, but they would have had a sizable group with them uh, with armed men uh, in order to provide protection and security as they sought uh, the king of the Jews. And so all of a sudden Herod gets his knock on the door, and it's these Parthian kingmakers whom he's scared to death of, and they're looking for the king of the Jews, and it's not him. How do you think he's going to react to that? He is scared to death. He, 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 there's always these Jewish conspiracies to get rid of him, and now... And now this, and so uh, he's somewhat scared to death. Now we also read in the verse that that they uh, these magi translated wise men in the King James and New King James. I think modern translations usually translate magi. They're from the east. Now that's a key word because later on they're going to say we saw a star in the east, and there's all this debate that that the star arose in the east. How would that get if they're in Parthia? How would a star in the east get them into, into the west? All of these references to from the east are talking about the fact that these magi are from somewhere in the east. Parthia was in the east. They're not, uh, as tradition suggests, one from Europe, one from Africa, one from Asia. Uh, all of that is just uh, made up over the course of time. They're Parthian kingmakers, and what got their attention in verse 2 is they saw his star in the east. Now, this star that they saw was not an astral phenomena. They didn't see a star. It's not a confluence of Jupiter and Mars and Venus. It's, it's, it's not an a, a asteroid or a comet or any of these other things because eventually it's this star that's going to point out a particular dwelling place where the Messiah is located. Now, if you have anything up in the sky that's uh, uh, 100 or 200 yards up above a house and you walk, follow that star, then when you get, you know, two, two blocks down the road, that star's moved. It's now over another house. You keep walking, and the star moves again, and, and it's showing another house. This is a different kind of star because it's going to indicate a specific house, an individual house, without any confusion. So that shows it's not something that is natural or normal. It is something that is supernatural, and I believe that the best explanation is that this star is a representation of the Shekinah glory of God that marks out the exact location of the birth of Jesus. And uh, at, at times some people have suggested that the star in the heavens that first appeared was different. That might have been an astronomical phenomena, but when we look uh, at verse 9... We're told when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east clearly identifies it as the same star, the one they had seen when they were in the east that had started them upon their, upon their journey. Now, this star is related to an Old Testament prophecy. In Numbers 24, 17, we read, I see him, this is a messianic uh, prophecy. As a matter of fact, in the uh, there's two or three different views of this, but in the ancient Targums, it was and rabbinical literature going back to the Second Temple period. This was clearly understood as a messianic prophecy. It wasn't talking about the House of David. It wasn't talking about some other event. It's specifically talking about uh, the Messiah. And so in that prophecy, it really begins in verse 14 and goes through 19. Numbers 24, 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. So it's talking about some long-term uh, fulfillment of prophecy. A star shall come out of Jacob. 
Well, Judah was one of Jacob's sons, and Judah is the one who, of whom it is predicted that the scepter will not depart from his tribe. And so we now say a scepter shall rise out of Israel. We know from Genesis chapter 49 that this scepter comes out of the tribe of Judah. So it's uh, Numbers 24 is borrowing image, imagery from Genesis chapter 49. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab. Now, this too is borrowing from ancient prophecy that the serp, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So again, the, the, these prophecies that we see in the Old Testament tend to pick up and borrow imagery and language from previous messianic prophecies to help enable us to put the picture together. So here we see uh, two allusions here that are clearly messianic, the scepter and battering the brow, and it's a, uh, and batter the brow of Moab. Now, Moab and Edom are closely related in biblical prophecy. Now, in the ancient world, during the time of the Old Testament, Israel never, they, they defeated Moab and Edom on several occasions, but there was never a final and total defeat of Moab and Edom. In fact, at the time of the birth of Jesus, Herod is, a, is an Edomite. But this prophecy in Numbers, written by Moses around 1404 B.C., is then echoed, and, and the themes are picked up in Amos 9, 11, and 12, which is again a messianic prophecy, also quoted in Acts uh, 15. In Amos 9, 11, we read as in this prediction of the Messiah, on that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David. That's a phrase that refers to the Davidic dynasty, that it, obviously the Davidic dynasty has fallen and needs to be restored. And so that as we've been living in a period where there has been a, uh, the Davidic dynasty has fallen and the restoration is yet future. The tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. Now, the reason I have these words in brackets is because it's a bad translation of the Hebrew. The suffix is there, shift from plural to singular, from masculine to feminine, and you have to pay attention to that or you misinterpret the whole prophecy. The tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair their damages. Now, the plural there wouldn't refer back to the tabernacle. It's referring to there. What's the damage? The damage is the split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So the Messiah is going to come and repair their damages, the, 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 the disunity of the northern and uh, southern tribes. Then the prophecy says, I will raise up its, and it's a plural masculine there, I mean singular masculine, his ruins. That would refer to the ruins of the Davidic dynasty and rebuild it. And this shifts to a um, feminine, which refers back to the tabernacle, rebuild it. That is the fallen booth of the Davidic dynasty as in the days of old. So you have a significant messianic prophecy here that that a Davidic king is going to come, restore the nation in unity, and reestablish the Davidic dynasty. What's the purpose for this? In verse 12, this is what we're getting at, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Edom and Moab go together. This represents the final defeat of Edom and Moab. When does that occur? It's still in the future when the Messiah comes to establish uh, to establish his uh, his kingdom. And so this this star is a significant prophetic sign of the arrival of the messianic king who will bring restore unity to Israel and uh, establish his his kingdom. So when Herod hears this, he's troubled. The word there in the in the Greek is terasso, which indicates worry. It indicates anxiety. It's used a couple of times in uh, the book of Acts, as we've seen on Tuesday night, to describe uh, when when the Jews would stir up the crowds and the riots against Paul and his uh, associates for proclaiming the gospel, and so they're ca- causing quite a quite a uh, trouble and riot. So when Herod the king heard this, he's troubled. I mean, he, he he's already paranoid. Now he is uber paranoid, and he just goes off the charts. 
and all Jerusalem with him, because they know if Herod's upset, who knows what's going to happen. So they're all troubled. And he gathers all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, not some of them, but all of them. He's going to get everybody together, and he asks where the Christ was to be born. And so they say to him, quoting from Micah 5.2, and there's no sign of dispute. They, they, they all agree, which tells us that in the first century they understood Micah 5.2 to be a messianic prophecy. In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. Now, I've added this translation from the New American Standard to the NKJV because it, 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 it more accurately translates what's in the Greek there, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. So there's a little bit of a double negative there, and we could translate it. Uh, Bethlehem, even though you are insignificant among the clans of Judah, you're just a small town that, that people overlook. Nevertheless, that would be the translation of this this negative uh, adverb here. Nevertheless, from you one will go forth. And what we see here is that the prophecy from Micah is that he sees a future ruler coming from this insignificant uh, small town. And Micah, here's Micah 5.2, where he states, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, uh, that was the ancient family name for Bethlehem from the original founder, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. Now that's all he quotes. Uh, see, there's Matthew 2, 5 again. All, just the emphasis there on out of you shall come a ruler. That's from the, uh, or from the Septuagint translation. The last part of Micah 5, 2, who's going forth or from of old, from everlasting, isn't quoted here in Matthew 2. The last part of the quote in Matthew 2 is, comes from 2 Samuel 5.2, also a messianic prophecy, that you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. See, that's the last line, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this is really a combination of two Old Testament prophecies, Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2. Now, once Herod learns this, he's going to enter into a little conspiracy, and he gathers the wise men together, the magi together, to find out when the star appeared, because he's going to, he's, he's already got a plan working to kill all the babies. And so he sends them on to Bethlehem in an extremely duplicitous way, says, go find the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me, and then I can come and worship him as well. Now we see their response and their adoration in verse 9. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east, so it's identified as the same star, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Now in verse 11 we read, And when they had come into the house, now, this would be the same place where Jesus was, was born in the manger. It doesn't have to be a separate location. They saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. They don't fall down and worship Mary. Mary is superficial to the events of what's taking place. The Bible presents Mary as just another human being. The Bible does not give any special uh, emphasis to Mary other than the fact that she is chosen by grace to be the mother of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they fall down and worship him. The word for worship means to bow the knee. It's not just saying that they bowed the knee because falling down would cover that. Uh, bowing the knee emphasizes their act of obedience and submission to the authority of Jesus as the king. And then they bring him gifts, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which are extremely rare and expensive in the ancient world. And it's very likely that this, the possession of these uh, extremely expensive items is what enabled Joseph and Mary to live because, as you know, uh, right after this, Joseph is warned by an angel that they need to leave Bethlehem because of Herod, and they go to Egypt. How did they live? What kind of... Uh, resource, financial resources did they have to survive? And it's very likely that they were able to use the gold, frankincense, and myrrh in order to take care of their physical life 
for the next uh, six months to a year or so. And this is another indication that God is the one who supplies our needs. He takes care of us and provides the resources we need in order to fulfill his plan for our life. But the primary emphasis here is that these are gifts for royalty because Jesus is a king and he is being worshipped by these kingmakers from Parthia. Verse 12, then we're told that God warns them in a dream to go home a different way, not to return by way of Herod, uh, which they do. And then there's a second warning given in verse 13, when they departed or after they departed, Behold, an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord, because that's an Old Testament term for the pre-incarnate Christ, but an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So Herod then is going to send his, his army down into Bethlehem to kill every infant under the age of two. But God protected uh, the young infant Jesus, and that very night Joseph and Mary left and departed for Egypt. And they were there until the death of Herod as a fulfillment of a prophecy. Now I'm going to stop here because next time we need to come back and look at these fulfillment, these prophetic fulfillments we see in the rest of the chapter, and then connect this to the early life of Jesus, which is explained in Luke 2. That'll be the last time we're in Luke for a while, but but Luke gives us one side of the story, Matthew the other side, and I'm trying to kind of put these things together for us so we can understand the significance. Matthew emphasizes Jesus as the king. If Jesus is the king, that means he's the boss. That means he is the, the one who has authority over our lives. And just as these Parthian kingmakers were submissive to Jesus and the authority of God, that's the primary lesson for us is that we too need to make sure that we are submissive to God's authority in our lives. And that means we need to know the word and we need to keep his commandments in the word, not the Ten Commandments, but the mandates for church age believers in the church age. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things about the birth of our Lord, to come to understand them more fully and to understand all of the different dynamics that are going on around the birth of our, uh, of the Lord. Just as Galatians 4 4 says, He is born in the fullness of times, just the perfect timing. And all of these different dynamics are coming together related to the Roman Empire, related to Herod, related to the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel, and related to the the Parthians, just to provide a perfect time for the arrival of the Savior who will be the King of the Jews and eventually will come back and assume that and take his throne at the second coming and establish his kingdom. Father, we thank you that uh, we have your word where I'm thankful for all the people here and their desire to know your word and to implement it in their lives. And may we just come to a fresh understanding of who our Savior is as we go through the study of, of Matthew. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus died on the cross for you. He died for your sins so that your sins are paid for. You have, you can have forgiveness of sin by simply trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And right now, right where you sit, you can trust in him, and from that instant forward, you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would keep us mindful of the lessons that we're learning in Matthew, that we may implement them in our lives, that our new life in Christ would be evident to all. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.